Pet Resource Radio is sponsored by La Mega KC, Kansas City Spanish radio station. Listen online or at 100.5 FM. We're also sponsored by our friends at 1KC Radio. Listen at 100.1 in the KC Metro or online at 1kcradio.org. Today we're talking with Dr. Samuel Franklin about orthopedics and dogs and cats and what kind of things you should be looking out for in your furry friends. Coming up on Pet Resource Radio. From the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, I'm Dave Shapiro. And I'm Sierra Howe, and welcome to the show. We're coming to you from our headquarters here at 59th and Troost in KCMO. We're a nonprofit whose goal is keeping pets and people together through supportive services. Indeed it is. What a crazy morning it has been. It has been a bit of a morning, um, and things just get weirder and weirder every moment. We just saw our friend Chris through the window. I was hangry, so I shoved my breakfast in my face, and now I'm regretting it. Yep. Um, ah, but it's Friday. Yep. We're recording on a Friday, so that's always good. Yep. Everybody's kind of running around. Um, I'm really unfocused today, so this will be a good episode. It's hard. <laughs> I'm excited, though, because tomorrow I get to help at an off-site or drive through clinic in KCK, and I haven't been in a while. That's awesome. So. And it'll be, I think, a nice day for it. So Yeah, for sure. In my new hoodie. So check out our online store. Yep, absolutely They've do that. put out some new designs. Yep, new designs up there. Uh, why don't we do some pet news? All righty. To kick things off, we've got another sappy story about the power of pets because not only is it one of our favorite things to talk about, but it's a nice reminder of why we all choose to work in the business of keeping pets and people together. Johanna Carrington is 100 years old, and she grew up in an orphanage in Germany where she never had the chance to have a dog. However, throughout her childhood, she made up for that lost time and has dedicated her life to love as many dogs as she can. When her previous dog, Rocky, passed away, she told Today that she wanted to adopt another one because she was lonely. But her daughter, Debbie, wasn't sure a shelter would allow her to adopt a pet because of her advanced age. She was referred to Muttville Senior Dog Rescue in San Francisco, where they have a Seniors for Senior program. Through them, she was connected with an 11-year-old Chihuahua mix Gucci who was saved from a hoarding situation and preferred to be the only dog in the home. It was a perfect match because Johanna had lots of love and attention to give, which is exactly what Gucci needed. Johanna's caregiver agreed to help her take Gucci on daily walks and help with his care so that she could adopt him, and upon meeting her, he immediately made himself at home. I'll leave you with this quote from Johanna's daughter. She said, quote, After she lost her other dog, it was quiet and sad here, and then Gucci brought joy into the house. Laughing about him running around and doing funny things, and then also sleeping on her lap with her while she's in a recliner sleeping in her bed, it's just making her very happy. That's fantastic. It is super sweet in the the pictures. I always talk about the pictures. You have to go look at them because obviously listening to the podcast, you, you can't put the visuals together. But I always love seeing seniors adopt senior dogs. And October is Adopt a Senior Pet Month. Hey. So if you have room in your house or room in your heart for a, um, an older pet or dog or cat, go to your local shelter. Yeah, check them out. 
they deserve lots of love and they certainly don't deserve to languish in shelters. So Definitely. Well, next up, how do dogs see the world? That might seem like a question whose answer might be more like science fiction than science fact, except that scientists at Emory University seem to have made the first steps toward it. Recent developments in machine learning have made possible what what seemed and kind of still sounds impossible. The researchers pioneered techniques in getting dogs to stand in an fMRI machine long enough to look at how changes in blood flow, which goes along with neuronal activation, occur in two unrestrained dogs' brains during three 30-minute viewing sessions. Um, They then look at that data and used a machine learning algorithm to analyze patterns in the data. Okay, so they're watching these videos. Um, and they are in an FM, fMRI machine and they're getting their brain scan to see what happens when they're looking at stuff. Okay. Quote. Thank you for that because this stuff always makes my brain hurt trying to understand <laughs> what they're saying. Um, so, cause that was the, the big difficulty was like, we want to study their brains, but the MRI machine, they got to stand still. Yeah. So that they had to like work with pets a long time in order to find, and mm-hmm. it was only like two of the eight or nine that they they like, tried they to use do my it. dogs. Good yeah, luck. Exactly. Okay. So quote, we showed that we can monitor the activity in a dog's brain while it is watching a video and to at least a limited degree, reconstruct what it is looking at. Says Gregory Burns, Emory professor of psychology and corresponding author of the paper quote, the fact that we are able to do that is remarkable. Two dogs, the two dogs, Daisy and Bubo, were praised for their willingness and ability to lie still for the video viewing sessions. The data shows that the dogs are more action-oriented in the way they process visual information. That is to say, they pay attention to movement first and foremost, as opposed to what or who is moving. Uh, While this is just a proof-of-concept experiment using a sample size of two, the researchers are hoping that this work can be expanded upon and we can have a better idea of how dogs see the world in general. This is pretty crazy. Yeah. It's interesting not, stuff. Yeah. And I'm surpri- kind of surprised, kind of not, about how long it took for somebody to come up with this this idea right. and then execute it. Right. But kudos to them. Because you always hear about, um, like, what color do dogs see in? Is it black and white or color when really, I think, it's in, like, brown shades? Mm-hmm. So this is pretty neat. Yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff. And it's just interesting to see how, I don't know, we're so biased by our own perception of how we process information. Exactly. So seeing how other animals, I don't know, just gives us a different uh, view on the world, I think. Yeah, and I think like before dogs got domesticated, this makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. Exactly. Good find. Thank you. Um, All right. Well, why don't we go talk to Dr. Samuel Franklin? Sounds good. Dr. Samuel Franklin has been practicing sports medicine, orthopedics, and spinal surgery exclusively since 2013. He's one of the few individuals in the world that is a founding fellow in minimally invasive orthopedic surgery and the only individual with this designation in the KC metro area. He currently practices as Kansas City Canine Orthopedics. We're excited to have him on the show to talk about what else? Canine and feline orthopedics with us. Dr. Franklin, welcome to Pet Resource Radio. Thank you. I'm very um, excited to chat with you guys a little bit today about um, veterinary orthopedics. Excellent. Well, let's start with the basics so that folks understand what we're talking about. What does orthopedics cover? 
Um, effectively, orthopedics covers um, any condition uh, of the musculoskeletal system. So think bones, joints, ligaments, tendons um, that affect uh, a patient's ability to move comfortably or effectively. Um, and so that can include surgical treatment, and it also includes non-surgical treatment. So, and and how did you find your way to this line of work? So, um, there were a couple of things. Uh, so, prior to veterinary school, um, I played uh, competitive soccer, so both in college and then um, after college played semi-professionally. So, I was always very interested in, in movement and activity and sport. And then, of course, obviously... Um, I was very much in love with dogs, having gone to to veterinary school, sure. um, and then combine that with during my first year in vet school, I was surprised that I really enjoyed um, anatomy, and um, as a result, I felt very technically challenged to do a good job with um, the, the anatomical learning and dissections. But as you kind of combine those all together, they had everything that I liked, which was orthopedic surgery tests your your skill. It's a it's a technical skill. Um, looking to enhance uh, the individual's ability to function well, move well, and ultimately be able to perform and be an athlete. Um, and being an athlete means different things for different dogs, but mm-hmm. in, in many ways, every dog can be or, or is an athlete, particularly when we get them back to moving well. So what, what are the advantages to seeing a specialist such as yourself for a diagnosis as opposed to seeing a full-service vet? Um. So that's this will probably be one of the questions that takes me a little bit longer to, to, to answer because sure. I think that it would help people to understand what it actually means to be a veterinarian versus a specialist. Um, for example, uh, to become a veterinarian, you go through four years of veterinary school, um, and then you have to take the national board exam. Once you do that, you are technically licensed and eligible to do anything you want with any species. So to give you an example... I'm a veterinarian. Technically, I could go do or treat a horse. Right. I have absolutely no experience or business treating horses. Um, I can barely get on a horse uh, unless I have assistance. But mm-hmm. legally, I'm allowed to do it. Doesn't mean that I should. Um, and so after those four years of veterinary school, anybody can go practice any aspect of veterinary medicine, including veterinary orthopedic surgery. But the reality is that it takes a lot of time experience and training to become consistently good at veterinary orthopedic surgery. So then what comes afterwards is if you want to be a surgeon, you spend at least one additional year of training doing an internship. And and these days, many people have to do one, two, some even three years of internship, during which time you prepare and you apply to get into a residency program. Um, and then if you get accepted into your residency program, you then um, spend three to four dedicated years in a residency doing nothing but surgery. So, for example, um, I did my residency at the University of Missouri, and that was a four-year program. So I did four years of vet school, one year of internship at the University of Pennsylvania, and then four years of residency and PhD at the University of Missouri. And then at the end of that, you take your board certification exam to confirm that you you are a specialist in your field, and in my case, of course, surgery. And then to speak to that, so surgery residencies are well-defined in terms of what needs to be done during that period of time. So you have to get training in orthopedic surgery, general, or what you would call soft tissue surgery, which could be everything from GI surgery to gallbladder surgery, et cetera, et cetera, as well as neurosurgery. 
And so now, well, 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 what one sees is, of course, with all that additional years of training and practice, you're really focused on a, on a narrow area of veterinary medicine. You have greater experience and you have greater skill. So at, at times I'm amazed at how how well and how good general practice veterinarians do in providing care to patients, given that they're being asked to do basically everything. Right. So the advantage that a specialist has is a specialist only needs to be very skilled and very knowledgeable in a smaller area, which lets them become highly skilled in that area. So the advantage to a pet owner taking their patient, their, their pet, I should say, to a specialist is that you're seeing somebody who practices orthopedics, for example, over and over and over again, every day, that's all they do. And they become extremely comfortable with it, as opposed to going to basically your family or general practitioner that is needing to cover and take care of all the array of problems that can affect the pet. Makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. So, okay. So you're, you're a founding fellow in minimally invasive orthopedic surgery, which is something I hadn't heard of. Can you explain to us a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So a few minutes ago, I talked about how to, to become a surgeon, you have these extra four to five years of training, but those four to five years of training do include training in orthopedics, general surgery, and neurosurgery. And now the route that veterinary um, surgery is going is to get further subspecialized. And so the way that is happening is to create fellowships that now follow a surgery residency. Mm -hmm. And so um, as an example, I am subspecialized basically in minimally invasive orthopedic surgery. So um, what that basically means is that we are now creating these fellowships. And in order to do that, um, what the American College of Veterinary Surgeons, who oversees and administers all surgeons um, in the United States and, quite frankly, ACBS diplomates go abroad, um, or creating fellowships, they had to identify um, individuals who have demonstrated um, particular expertise and skill in different areas. And one is minimally invasive orthopedic surgery. And those individuals have become the founding fellows in the area of minimally invasive orthopedic surgery. I'm one of those 18 members worldwide. Um, and so what minimally invasive orthopedic surgery is, to finally come around and answer your question, <laughs> are surgeries that can be done, but now in a less invasive fashion in order to minimize the degree of surgical trauma to the patient and hopefully therefore result in a faster and less painful recovery. Mm -hmm. So the area that, that I that I do the most of that in is arthroscopy. So instead of doing surgery where we incise and cut open a joint and look inside a joint with our naked eye, we use an arthroscope. So make very small incisions, insert a camera, insert instruments, view everything on a video screen and do the surgery that way rather than opening the, the, the joint up. And then similarly for fracture repair, we can perform a lot of fracture repairs now through very small incisions where you guide the placement of the implants and the realignment of the fracture by taking images during surgery, x-ray images during surgery to see where you're placing those implants through basically very small incisions rather than making big incisions to open everything up. Well, that sounds fantastic. That sounds like a much better and, 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 and easier on the pet way to do things. Well, okay, so to move on to actual issues. What are some of the common issues that people are generally looking out for? And then what are some of the things you see that people aren't on the lookout for? 
Yeah, I love this question because I do think that um, just a little bit of added information will help so many pet owners. And so what I mean by that, for example, is almost every pet owner that I've ever met is like, well, I've, I've heard about hip dysplasia and I know about hip dysplasia um, and that's good. But they also have a, a very great misconception as to what hip dysplasia is. Mm-hmm. Um, so as an example, many owners in their mind associate hip dysplasia as being something that affects older dogs. Right. And that is not true. So hip dysplasia, by definition, is something that affects dogs as they're growing. So every dog who has hip dysplasia has hip dysplasia when they're eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 months of age. It's just that in a, a proportion of those dogs with hip dysplasia, they may then develop osteoarthritis as a result of the hip dysplasia. And the owner may not recognize that the dog is having difficulty because of the osteoarthritis until the dog is older in life. Right. But it doesn't mean that the problem actually started older in life. The problem was present earlier in life. And of particular relevance, is that there are things that we can do for dogs with hip dysplasia when they're young and before they have developed that osteoarthritis to try and prevent them from developing the osteoarthritis that will ensue. And so what I want to try and and help owners understand is they really should be thinking about hip dysplasia as being something that affects their dog as their dog is young and growing again, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 months of age or, or younger, um, and think about trying to uh, evaluate for it and potentially address it at that point in time, rather than having a, an association that hip dysplasia is something that affects old dogs. Because by the time a dog is eight, nine, 10 years old and has hip osteoarthritis, your, your options are just a little bit more limited. I mean, we have many, but they're a little bit more limited in comparison to a young individual that is caught early. Um, and then Another thing that that I've I've always wanted to be able to share with pet owners is while most pet owners have heard of hip dysplasia, I occasionally have owners who are, who come in and their dog has um, cranial cruciate ligament disease or the other term that is used um, very commonly, albeit technically erroneously, but but I use it too to try and keep things simple as an ACL tear. And owners will say, "Hey, you know, I've heard about hip dysplasia in dogs." But I've never heard, you know, I've had dogs and I've never heard about the ACL being an issue, which is interesting because cranial cruciate ligament disease or ACL tear is the most common orthopedic abnormality in dogs. We see and treat this every single day. Um, without fail, we are going to be seeing and treating a patient with ACL disease every single day. So it's super duper common. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's something that that all owners should be aware of, in my humble opinion. Now, to the extent that we don't have great ways of preventing it from occurring, um, there is that providing that degree of information is only so helpful to owners at this stage of the game, other than having awareness that that is the single most common orthopedic abnormality in dogs, more common than um, hip osteoarthritis or hip dysplasia. Um, And then the last one um, that I'd like to touch base on is elbow dysplasia, Mm -hmm. because that is also very, very common and very difficult to to address when it reaches its very end stage in the very old patient. Again, we have some good options, 
um, that we can treat those patients. But the emphasis or point I'm trying to make is raising people's awareness that elbow dysplasia is somewhat similar to hip dysplasia in that it affects dogs or develops as they are growing. So when they are between six and 12 months of age, and that if we can identify those patients at that time, between six and 12 months of age, right. we have some much better options to try and treat those patients and prevent them from developing osteoarthritis. And so to bring things kind of to a succinct summary there, if you have a young dog and a puppy, um, particularly a large gray puppy, but if you have a young dog and it's several months old and it's showing any degree of clinical signs, or quite frankly, even if you just want to screen it and make sure that there's not a problem there, don't don't dismiss that, hey, well, my dog's a puppy. It, it couldn't have hip dysplasia or elbow dysplasia because that's a that's a disease of old dogs. You should think to yourself, no, like I should be looking into this now, not delaying evaluating this, because if I can catch it early, there are some things that we can do that won't be options later. Exactly. That's fantastic advice. Thank you. So what are the main differences in what we see going on with dogs versus what we see with cats? Yeah. So that's a super question too. So um, the, the biggest very general statement that one can make is that we see more joint dysplasias um, in dogs than we do in cats. Mm. Um, so I just talked about hip dysplasia, elbow dysplasia, and quite frankly, that cranial cruciate ligament disease in dogs that I talked about, some people have even suggested that because it's a degenerative disease process and not truly an injury, mm -hmm. that maybe it is really a form of knee dysplasia too. Mm. Um, so we're talking about developmental or degenerative disorders are very, very common in dogs. In cats, um, we tend to see cats more commonly for trauma. Mm. Um Meaning cats have done something like leap off the top of the refrigerator, do a backflip and usually land just fine. Right. But once in a while, not land quite well and they'll suffer a broken bone or maybe a truly traumatically torn ligament. As opposed to we don't see cats as frequently for, hey, my cat has elbow dysplasia or my cat has hip dysplasia. Um and so that's probably one of the big differences is that the, the proportion of cats that we see are most often um, a result of some type of trauma uh, and result in a fracture or traumatic ligament or joint instability. And those individuals oftentimes therefore need surgical stabilization of those fractures or those joints. Right. That makes sense. So do you think that these differences, you know, between dogs and cats, is this really just a behavioral thing or is this more anatomical in nature? I think it's probably um, more anatomical in nature. I, I think that behavior and, and trauma can play a, a, a role, um, but a lot of dogs do a lot of um, kind of crazy activity too, right? Sure. They can they can run and move very rapidly and boy, they crash into each other at dog parks pretty hard sometimes mm -hmm. um, and they usually get up and are just fine. Um, and so I think it's more a function of that uh, as we tend to say in veterinary medicine, cats are not just little dogs. Um, they are oh, a species, wow. you know, in and of themselves. So their anatomy and their physiology is different. And so it means that the, the issues or problems that we see are different accordingly. 
makes sense. And it, I appreciate you saying that. That's actually something I've been saying. I didn't know that people said that in veterinary medicine. I've been saying that here for years now. Um, the cats are not small dogs. And because uh, it's something my my wife is a practice manager at the Casey Cat Clinic. And, you know, they, of course, get a lot of referrals from your second opinions from people who have been to veterinarians that want to treat the cat like a small dog. And so, you know, you got to got to keep that in mind that they're just they're a different beast altogether. Yep, exactly. The problems that they get, um, the medications that they can be treated with, the surgeries that we do, um, there are differences. Um, And so uh, we have to take those into consideration. Each individual is an individual um, and, and the species difference is a pretty big difference in all reality. Yeah. So how can people be on the lookout for these sorts of issues and what can they do to mitigate them? Yeah, well, I guess I'll I'll start very broadly um, making just some general recommendations, um, which are going to seem intuitive, but they're probably worth repeating. And that is um, if we're talking about mobility, um, whether again, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about dogs right now than I am about cats, but if we're talking about dogs, there are some very basic things um, that that owners can do. Um, And those include the following. And that is um, have your dog exercise daily, moderate daily exercise. Um, Feed your dog a good diet. And very importantly, keep your dog at an appropriate body weight. So keep your dog lean and fit. And and just like in people, if you – exercise moderately and on a routine basis and you eat well and you're, you're, you're not overweight, you're in good body condition, that helps with your mobility and your associated comfort. And we see and have sub, uh, very substantial data in dogs that indicate the exact same thing. And so that's, that's the first very basic thing. So uh, keep your dog um, relatively lean and in shape and fit and enjoy that process. Enjoy exercising with your dog. Um, and then Beyond that, what I would say is that when, if you want to be particularly proactive, um, I think that um, screening dogs um, at a young age, uh, meaning between six and 12 months of age for hip dysplasia or elbow dysplasia, um, is something to c- consider doing. Because again, there, there are some options there to try and um, mitigate or prevent um, those elbows and those hips from degenerating over time. And therefore, avoid you ending up in a situation where your your loved one is is limited later in life. Um, and then I would say the last is that um, there are also some some orthopedic conditions wherein time is a little bit of the essence. And um, so, what I'm referring here to specifically is there are some scenarios in which a dog suffers a fracture, and um, time passes between when that fracture is suffered and when the patient is presented for evaluation and treatment. Um, and that, that makes the fixation of that fracture a bit more challenging. And going back to talking about minimally invasive fracture repair, it's easier to fix fractures sooner rather than later. Right. So where I'm going with this is if your dog or, or your cat, for example, um, is showing clinical signs of a problem, limping or lameness. Um, I, I completely understand that there are a number of dogs or cats who can have a little bit of lameness and they're going to get over it. Like it's, it's not something that's going to warrant a surgical intervention. 
And with a little bit of time and rest, um, they're going to improve and get over it. And so um, it would be tempting for an owner to say, I'm going to give this my patient a, a couple of weeks and see how they do before I go see my veterinarian. And what I would encourage pet owners to do is when they're in that situation, I would not do that. I would take your pet to go see the veterinarian when those clinical signs or symptoms are first noted, because there are certainly certain conditions and situations where early recognition provides an opportunity to um, treat the situation more effectively than waiting a little while. Um, and so one good example of that is uh, we can suffer fractures of, of growth plates in young growing animals. And because these are young puppies or cats, I mean, oftentimes they'll miraculously seem to bounce back and do reasonably well starting a few days later. But then two weeks, three weeks goes by and you realize, yeah, my animal's still not quite right. And if we then are presented with, hey, we want to fix this growth plate two or three weeks later, well, the growth plate may already be affected where subsequent growth is not going to be quite as optimal as it would otherwise be. Right. And it would be a good situation where I'd say, hey, it would have, it would be nice if we could repair that growth plate within 48 hours, maybe 72 hours of the time the injury occurs, rather than trying to tackle that three weeks later. Makes a lot of sense. And you've just been making sense nonstop this whole interview. I, I really appreciate it. Well, Dr. Franklin, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, this is a subject that I think a lot of people could use a lot of education on. I certainly learned a lot today. So I appreciate you stopping by to talk to us about it. I really enjoyed it. And um, please don't hesitate to reach out to me with any questions. And I hope everybody stays healthy and happy and has fun getting out there and playing. And now we say goodbye to you, friends. Big thanks again to Dr. Franklin for being on the podcast today. If you're interested in his work, just head to kck9ortho.com. As for us, we're a nonprofit dedicated to keeping pets and people together, and you can help. Just go to prckc.org, and you can donate, volunteer, shop our online store, and more. And that online store has just been updated with some new t-shirt designs by yours truly, so check them out. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting app, be sure to rate us and leave us a review because that always helps new people find us. And for all the latest info, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at PRR Podcast on both platforms. So tail wags and purrs to you and yours. And as the author Mark Haddon said, I like dogs. You always know what a dog is thinking. It has four moods, happy, sad, cross, and concentrating. Also, dogs are faithful and they do not tell lies because they cannot talk. Take care. Pet Resource Radio is a production of the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, produced, written, and hosted by Sierra Hound, Dave Shapiro, recorded, mixed, and mastered by Dave Shapiro, music by Hazel Rob Musical Industries, a.k.a. me. More info at soundcloud.com slash Hazel Rob Musical Industries.